Case file number 2.5. What's in a name? Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subject of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. So, Ymir, you know what a host file is, right? I do. Uh, you were telling me a story about, about uh, one of the networks you were working on where, where they wanted to manage everything through replicated host files. Oh, yeah, that's a lot of missions that I've worked on is, you know, using like Puppet to manage host files. And it's, uh, it's a nightmare. Yeah. Well, it turns out that's the way that ARPANET originally ran. The reason really, just all a bunch of hosts? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll, we're going to go into exactly how they managed that. But the reason why basically every modern operating system supports host files is because that's the way they originally did name resolution. Mm, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. So today's topic is the basics of DNS. This is all the nuts and bolts so that we have something to point back to anytime we start talking about crazy DNS stuff. But we're going to get into some more adventurous stuff in part two, which is going to be a eulogy of Dan Kaminsky, who died at the time of this recording about five days ago and was the author of at least half of the cool stuff in DNS after the basic stuff that we're going to go over now. Um, so, well, author or involved in. Uh, right. so, so that's upcoming because I, we need some foundation before we can talk about some of the really cool things that, uh, that he wrought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So back in 1983, the ARPANET was getting a little big. Um, and they published two of the early requests for comments, 82 and 883, defining the basic, the, the original DNS. They were authored by a guy named uh, Paul Makaparetis, and he had received about a half a dozen uh, proposals on how naming should work, and he hmm. sorted through them and wrote up the, the specs for that. The hosts file that everybody used was, was maintained by the Stanford Research Institute Updates were made over the phone during office hours. Wait, so like, like someone would call you and just tell you what to type into the host file? Yes, and then, and <laughs> that's great. So, and then you and then you replicate it from from all the other things, probably using Gopher. Um, but what is Gopher? I've never. Gopher is the predecessor to FTP. Um, oh, okay. It was it, it was a very old file transfer protocol, and as a quick aside, Java used to maintain it, but Gopher had almost nothing to it. And so what, the, what somebody found out uh, was that you could embed a packet, like the entire content, the binary encoded contents of a packet, okay. uh, feed it to the Gopher client in Java, and it would send that, that would just be the payload part of the packet. It would just put an IP and TCP header on it and take that binary and put it straight there. <laughs> um, so it basically allowed you to attack any port on any protocol as long as you could manually generate the packets. That's pretty cool. The guy was talking at, at the talk at Black Hat about 
how to attack SAP basically behind the uh, web server. And I was like, and he was talking about how he did, was doing this. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. This is not an SAP attack. You buried the lead. This is <laughs> like, <laughs> this technique is like, is, is a Swiss army chainsaw. But it turns right. out that he was doing the responsible thing. And he uh. told Oracle about it before. Well, I don't remember if it was Sun or Oracle at the time, but uh, they took out the client from Java before mm-hmm. he gave his talk. So like, uh, okay. by the time it was made public, nobody could exploit it. Well, not nobody, but but that version of Java would have been the version of Java on the server that you're running it from. But anyway, since you brought up Gopher, I figured I'd share that one. But that's um, so. I mean, I'm going to quote the 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 Bible of our work, Wikipedia. In 1984, four UC Berkeley students, Douglas Terry, uh, Mark Painter, David Riggle, and Sonyan Zhu, uh, wrote the first Unix name server implementation for the Berkeley Internet do- uh, name domain, commonly referred to as Bind. And that's where the where the DNS server, the ER DNS server, got its name, uh, Bind. Mm, okay. A lot of folks, it's still used significantly and more products than you think use it underneath the hood. Oh, use I, Bind? I, yeah, use, yeah, use yeah. Bind as their underlying name server. And it's, uh, um, what's it up to, version 9 now? So it, It's been version 9 for a long time. I think it's 9.8 something. Uh, they've been doing point releases for a long time. The original incorporation of several things, including DNSSEC and uh, split Horizon, which we'll get into, or view, uh, DNS views, which are used for Split Horizon, which we'll talk a little bit about at the end of the at the end of what I have, um, were enabled in version nine, and they've just been doing point releases since then because they haven't been a, ver- a major version change. Oh, okay, okay. I've been doing this entirely too long to know that off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so in '85 there was a significant revision of the software and then it was handed over to the current maintenance team mike carls phil almquest and paul vixie Uh, paul vixie shows up a lot in the i mean these guys are still around paul vixie is still a pretty big name and like he wrote a cron daemon called that is known as vixie cron uh it was important i don't think i but it's not it's not the version that's out there right now a lot of the things he did were incorporated but like the, I believe the GNU version is, is the basis of what most, most distros use at this point. Hmm. Um, but when we got that first bind server in 84, uh, that was the same year that ARPANET reached 1,000 hosts. So that hosts file that, we're, that we were talking about earlier was mm-hmm. about 1,000 hosts long. Doesn't sound Yeah. Yeah. But, so like it only took 1,000 hosts for them to be at, wait a minute. Screw this. Yeah. We need a better way. Yeah, to do it. there's got to be something better than this. Yeah. Turns out there is, depending on your opinion of, of, of DNS. Um, <laughs> but DNS is not something you can get away with from. It, it, it's here and it's probably here to stay. Yeah. I mean, though, like tell my missions that you can't get away from it. Yeah. Well, I don't know how, how they can conceive that hosts files, host files are better. Yeah, I'm, I'm not. Exactly sure. And the whole process of like moving them to DNS has been pretty cumbersome because there's there's still like a lot of the uh, operators like, oh, well, you got to modify my host file. I'm like, no, I I modified the the DNS your system looks at like, you're good to go. And they're like, but what about the host file? I'm like, no, no, I I don't need to modify that. (laughs) 
Well, actually, if they've already got an entry, the host's file takes precedence over DNS. Oh, I blew away all their host file. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, well, I took their host file, turned it into DNS entries, and then blew it away from the system. Yes, of course. Okay. So how does DNS work? We're going to start with the top-level domains. So if, you, if a DNS top, TLD top-level domain has two letters, if it's .uk, .us, .cn, mm -hmm. .tv, what kind of things can have a two-letter top-level domain? I, you mean in terms of like the countries that they're associated with? Yes, yes. It's, it, that all, all two letters are, are country domains. Um, and the funny thing about that is that the .tv top-level domain is property of the Tuvalu government, which is a Polynesian island country little island country that sued for its uh, independence from, I believe, you know what? I didn't have it marked here, but they, they, they gained independence in like the 70s or the 60s. Hmm, okay. um, so because English speaking .tv ended up being a, a desirable suffix to domain names, uh, they decided that they wanted to make some money off of it. Right. Well, they ended up working out a licensing deal where they got paid like $50 million over a period of, or they were supposed to be paid $50 million over 10 years. There were some shenanigans about the payments, but their first payment was for a million dollars. And that million dollars in 1999 was what allowed the Tuvalu government to register with the UN, to join the UN. Oh, really? And, and yeah. They're selling their, cool. Yeah. They're them selling their, the, 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 naming management rights to uh, to their domain allowed them to join the, the, the UN. And by 2010, nearly 10% of the revenue for the government, for the entire government were royalties from the .tv domain. Huh, interesting. So next quiz, que DNS quiz question. The original three letter do uh, top level domains, there are six of them. Can you name them? Well, six? Hmm. Yes. And the original, sense. well, like dot coms, obviously, dot edu, yeah. dot gov. Yep. Uh -huh. uh, was dot biz original one? Mm, nope. Okay. Um, yeah, this is like the, the main three that come to mind. Yep. Uh, oh, dot mil? Dot mil. Mm -hmm. um, trying to like think of all the other ones that I've seen. <laughs> I don't think there's one specifically for science, is there? There's not like a dot sci. Yep. Well, there probably is now. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, yeah, now I'm drawing a blank on the other two. .org and .net. Oh, right, right, okay. Yeah, I feel like I don't see a lot of .nets anymore. They're supposed to be for network and telecommunications providers, but that's broadened out a lot. I know that a lot of provider, a lot of vendors that I've worked with that um, are vendors of something network-related have a .net name. Mm, yeah like firewall vendors and, and network management stuff and whatnot. Okay, so all those top level domains are um, managed by registrars. And those registrars have those have naming stuff delegated to them from what organization? This is the third, this is the last question in the quiz. <laughs> the, what is it, the IETF or? No, but close. Okay. Um, so ICANN runs all of that stuff, and I actually don't have ICANN. Uh, IETF is the Internet Engineering Task Force, and they're the folks that actually publish the RFCs. And the folks that manage this stuff and 
um, some of the number authority stuff uh, are managed by the Internet Assignment Numbers Authority, IANA, I-A-N-A. Okay, okay, gotcha. They're the folks that you register a new top-level domain with. They're the ones that uh, would specify where to find the top-level the top-level domain servers for a new TLD or changes to an existing one. Okay. So every top-level domain, in order to have the next level down, so something.com, example.com, or, or or whatever, and that's a real domain that people use that somebody owns, but they don't do very much with it uh, mm -hmm. because they get so much pollution from it being used in so many examples. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much all the examples. It is the uh, it's the hollow world of uh, setting up a domain or anything. Well, the hilarious thing is there is a reserved TLD for that. It's dot example. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Ah, okay. Huh. Nobody uses it, but it exists. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But so if you have example.com, how does somebody find example.com? The registrar doesn't have all of your name, all of your DNS entries. They just tell the rest of the internet where to find your name server. So it has a name server, an NS record. Mm. And they require two generally. Uh, and they point to the IP addresses of your two DNS. Well, it could be a name, uh, but... You can only use a name if it's also used as a, as a DNS server for other domains. Mm -hmm. um, that tells the rest of the world where your name server is for example.com. Um, and the name server has name server records of its own. It can actually delegate name servers other than the ones that are specified at the, uh, at the top level domain. Mm -hmm. And in addition to be an authoritative name server, it needs to have a record, an SOA record, which is the start of authority record. It has two main functions. One is to set all the time to lives for that zone, how long you should hold on to a record, um, how often you should retry, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then they also has the serial number for the, for the zone record. And that's an arbitrary number that you can use uh, that just needs to be greater than the last update. Now, the thing about it is that's supposed to be the serial number of the current zone file because the idea behind this is that it everybody was running find or something very close to it right. that has just a file that is a bunch of res resolution records. Um, a lot of there are several DNS servers that are around nowadays that use a that use a more dynamic or database based backend but the important thing is that when a uh, when a resolving server checks the start of authority record it says oh did you change any of your records mm -hmm. and that's what the serial number is really for um, and those and the zone file or whatever is mimicking it is going to contain all of the a records, the address records, which is resolving a name to an address, a C name record, which resolves a name to another name. And well, this is usually most of the records you see. Uh, and an MX record, um, which is the mail exchange, which is how other mail servers, mail servers from other domains know where to deliver your mail. Right, right. The, uh, the mail to the in, your inbound mail server. Yeah, the one, one of the things um, I've, I've never actually really played with because. Thankfully, so, I've never had to manage mail servers. The, the, the next question is, well, we've got these top-level domains, right? Right. Well, how does anybody find those top-level domains in the first place? 
there is a set of 13 root servers run by IANA um, that have all of that information. And they distribute a flat file, not entirely unlike a host's file, mm -hmm. to show where to find those 13 root servers in order to find all the top level domains. That file is actually really important to the way that DNSSEC functions, but we're probably not gonna get to that until episode two. Right. So now we have how the delegation of authority works. Do you think you could walk through how the resolution path works? Uh, yeah, I can try to remember the lessons that I used to teach uh, when I was a professor. Um, the way I usually explained it to my students was that your system um, checks first at its uh, its host file to see if it has any resolution there. If it can't figure it out there, then it goes to your name server you specified in your IP config. It goes out and hits your name server. If your name server doesn't know uh, about it and you have a forward lookup zone, it just kind of continues along the path and it just breaks it down where it goes out and you know, for the example.com, it goes and finds the name server for .com and then .com leads it to the name server, for example. And right. just builds all that out. Yeah, and the, and the, you hit upon the, the next important point, which is caching. Mm. So that resolving name server is gonna, if it gets, if it previously got an answer, like for .com, because it's probably looking up a lot of .com names, it's gonna keep that in cache. And caching is, in the first place, really important to the speed and sustainability of DNS. But it's also a part of some of the problems that we that uh, DNS has occasionally uh, various attacks against DNS. Right, the the cache poisoning. Yes, in fact, exactly cache poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. You got the bonus question. Actually, Hooray. I had a well. I actually had a bonus question. There's one other top-level domain that was part of the original infrastructure. It's got four letters to it. This is the bonus four letters. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just going to go with IANA. <laughs> no, but not that far off. Dot A-R-P-A. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and what it's used for generally, I think it might have some other uses, but, but what almost everybody uses it for is reverse DNS. Resolving an IP to a name. Right, right, right. Now, all those records, or a, resolving an IP to a name is not an A record, but it's very similar. But it's uh, known as, a, do, do you know what record type it is? Yeah, you, well, I, I was just going to say, you know, it just didn't click till just now. You know, doing doing an ARP list on a system to get all the, uh, all the IPs and everything and associated. Huh. Uh, well, so ARPA is for the Advanced Research Projects Administration. Mm -hmm. ARP is Address Resolution Protocol. Right. Anyway. What, what, what was the question? So uh, what kind of record uh, maps an IP to a name? Oh, uh, shit. I should know this. Um, yeah, I can't think of it off of the top of my head, even though I do this like literally every day. <laughs> it's a PTR record. Oh, that's right. The pointer record, yeah. Um, now, the thing about that is that all of the subnets in the internet have a re reverse resolution zone. But IPs are processed or, or at least written in one direction and DNS is written in the, in the opposite direction. Like IPs are least specific to most specific. Uh, DNS is most specific to least specific. So if you wanna do a 
resolution for uh, the PTR record for 1.2.3.4, the query would look like 4.3.2.1.in-adder.arpa. Mm -hmm. Because each octet is a separate zone. And that's how uh, that and that's how reverse DNS works. And DNS is not particularly reliable on the internet because A, it's not highly maintained, but anybody doing any kind of dynamic DNS stuff isn't going to maintain useful pointer records and sometimes pointer records at all. It is like even in like AD domains, it's just it's an optional field. Yeah. When you create the um, the A record. Yeah. It it is very helpful on an internal network to have that though. But another thing is, it's very hard to brute force enumerate a forward lookup domain because trying every alphanumeric combination going out to eight characters is frankly the same as is brute forcing a, a, a password of the same length. Mm -hmm. But if you have a slash 24 that you want to find out all of the domain names for, you know, harvesting that is 250 six queries right. so so as a general rule all um if you don't want to disclose parts of your network out to the internet you don't fill in the reverse dns that will help somebody figure out your network mm -hmm. yeah that makes sense so in early dns um two of the things that kind of were, were you watched out for the most were um the first one is a zone transfer reconnaissance so we we're just talking about enumerating the entire zone. Well, what happens if you could basically download the zone file? And to do that, you can um, the DNS servers replicate between themselves mm -hmm. using zone transfers. And pretty early on in the internet, out to like the early 2000s, a lot of administrators didn't really put much security on that. So you could essentially download the zone file from anywhere. Right. And therefore know where all the stuff was on that network. Mm -hmm. And the other major issue around that time period, there were a, several bind buffer overflows in around 2001, 2002 that would allow you to do several things, but the most important of which being um, execute remote code. Um, mm. One of the big ones was CVE 2002, 12, 19. And the thing is, the buffer overflows and the zone transfers all require a TCP connection because DNS can run on TCP port 53 or UDP 53, right. port 53. So because basically all of the danger was on TCP 53, folks would block TCP 53 at their firewall level and only hmm. allow UDP DNS. And that has been kind of a pretty standard configuration for a really long time. People are only starting to undo that because, well, DNSSEC, which again, episode two. But the real the real killer, uh, and there were lots of cases of this, but we're gonna talk about two of them. Um, the real killer early on were DNS hijacking, domain hijacking. And okay. those, yeah, those were all social engineering attacks more than they were, well, they were pretty much all social engineering attacks rather than attacks against DNS servers. Mm -hmm. So a spoofed email led to D the DNS records for Nike.com being changed and pointed to uh, FirstNet Online of Scotland. Really? 
knocked them the heck off the internet. <laughs> it was only like for like six hours. Um, right. But the domain change was allowed by network solutions without password authentication. It was claimed, essentially the, the, the guy running uh, FirstNet was saying, hey, Nike, you didn't secure your domain. And that might be true. The, the information that the, in all of their articles I read on this was inconclusive. But network solutions and other registrars have had recurring problems with authenticating transfers, which is one of the reasons why hijacking continued to be a, a significant problem for years afterwards. Um, so I'm not sure that I give NSI you know, Network Solutions Incorporated the benefit of the doubt on that one. Right. And then the whole saga with sex.com. Did you ever read anything about that? Oh, sex.com? No, no. What is that about? So this guy, um, uh, Co- this guy, uh, his last name was Cohen. Um, what he did was... Was he one of the Cohen brothers? No, he wasn't. Um, <laughs> he had a little bit of a life. He forged a letter to Network Solutions. Not an email, a letter. Okay. In 1995. And oh, they damn, transferred okay. sex.com to him from Gary Kerman, who was the original owner of Match.com. He originally, he, he, he ran Match.com um, okay. before it got sold to a big corporation. So massive hijacking. And this guy, Cohen, was running uh, porn sites off of this for years. Wait, what, what was in this letter that like, he was able to... So it was on forged letterhead from Kerman's company. Uh-huh. And they, essentially, it claimed that, you know, that Kerman said, you know, I'm not interested in maintaining this anymore. I don't have an internet connection. I'm not interested in the internet business anymore. Um, and transferred it. And they were like, "Yep, sounds legit." No one, no one could ever write a fake, a fake letter of all things. Of all things. So, in August 2000, a court ruled that domains were not property, really? and that, like, yes, that all of the statutes relating to theft, or as it's known in the legal world, conversion, didn't apply. Only like the more generic fraud statutes apply where the burden of proof would be to prove that the that the letter was forged and stuff. Hmm. Okay. Luckily, that was reversed and made the precedent in about in 2003. So domains are property now, and that's the precedent. But original but the original ruling did not say that the, the domains were property. And Kerman had to continue appealing to get to the point where we even considered domains property. <laughs> Is interesting. This kind of sounds like just a, a shortcoming failing of the legal system, like just not keeping up with technology as it always yeah. does. I mean, this was in 2000, but at this point, like the idea that domains aren't property is pretty ridiculous. He likened it to a phone number that you aren't entitled to permanent ownership of your phone number, right? which is also something that isn't really the same as it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was eventually ruled that Cohen stole the domain and owed um, Kerman $65 million. Cohen basically never paid it and was arrested in Tijuana and extradited to the U.S. What was, it? What was uh, the $65 million based off of just the amount of money that he made while he had the, the domain yeah. stolen? Oh, okay. Oh, no. The amount, yeah, the amount of money that, that, that Cohen made running sex sites once the domain was stolen. 
Kramer also sued Network Solutions, which settled for $15 million after VeriSign had bought Network Solutions. Hmm, okay. This, even, this lawsuit survived the name, the, the, the Network Solutions as an independent company. Damn. So this was the biggest case, but lots of hijacking stuff happened over time. Uh, there were the hz.com had this problem, uh, had a significant problem with that. Panics.com. There were a lot of problems with authenticating transfers from one registrar to another um, oh. and not authenticating with the original owner. Um, there were a lot of cases where they took emails instead of you know password authentication. <laughs> and they offered some of the, they offered some of these services, but they weren't super consistent about applying them. I, I just like the idea of like just emailing. It's just like, nah, it's okay. It's okay. Cool. Also, emailing in the two thousands, there wasn't a lot of anti spoof technology at that point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, DNS spoofing and cache poisoning. Now, DNS spoofing isn't something that's easy as a hacker to do, unless you're on maybe the same wireless network as somebody, but can be pretty easily done by anybody in the traffic path because. Like we said, they pushed all of the DNS traffic to UDP, uh -huh. which means that you don't have to figure out TCP windowing or anything, uh, the TCP synchronization and window numbers at all. All the information you need to respond to a DNS query is in the, D is in the one packet of a DNS query. So all you have to do is beat the name server to the response. Right. This is a pretty common trick with ISPs, this is how ISPs will rewrite, in a, let's say in a benign way, if a, D, if a zone doesn't exist and they resolve it to a place where you, where you see a web page that says, sorry, there's a problem, you know, the Verizon web page that says I couldn't resolve this. Right, right. It can do that because it's responding to your DNS traffic, even though it's not the server you asked. <laughs> yeah. Or, and there were some problems with this from ISPs, they would hijack um, ad servers and run their own ads. Yeah. Uh, ad hijacking, that kind of fun. And then the next thing is cash poisoning, which we talked about a little bit earlier. If you can manage to respond to a caching name server, it's going to hold on to that answer for a while, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What happens if, if you get it to cache that the name server for google.com is someplace else? Then you basically get to control all the uh, DNS lookups for. Exactly. Yeah. So that's another way of hijacking things in a more transient way than complete than doing a complete domain hijacking. Wasn't there? Uh, shoot, I'm trying to remember what the name of it is. But I feel like the, like there was like a little hack five tool that used to do that. Um, it was like fairly portable. You could just put it on the Wi-Fi network and like plug it in, and it looked like an air freshener or something. Yeah, um, and that's all based on how on how this stuff works. Like you said, hack five got it to the point where it was. You know, basically a mini a, a a a mini computer Raspberry Pi level system. Yeah. So I'll bet you there's. I'm just saying that I'll bet you there's a hack five thing because I know that I've seen um, open source tools that can do it. So I just can't see hack five not having made a little widget to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now we're to the portion of the program where we're talking about a few infrastructure infrastructure things, ways of running DNS on an enterprise that folks may be familiar with or may not understand why they're why the place they worked 
didn't let them do something like what they were doing to, to, to stop them. So black holing via DNS is making a static entry for a particular resolution, either a domain or a name. Basically, any record can be black holed. And like we were saying with the DNS resolution, if you wanted to block example.com, if you blocked the, if you had the example.com name server record as loopback or some black hole on your on your um, on your network, yeah. then it would never get any further. You don't need to block every single name in there. You just need to block the the, uh, the domain name. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Now to do that, among other benefits, but uh, you you need to make sure that everybody uses your DNS server in order to make that kind of black holing work. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of there's actually a few reasons why you want to block all outbound DNS and make sure everything goes through your server infrastructure. And some of that has to do with um, well, we talked about the DNS changer in the in the Operation Ghost Click episode, but also other kinds of botnet beaconing will go directly out to specific DNS servers instead of using your um, your infrastructure DNS path because that avoids some levels of monitor. Right. Right. So um, another trick that happens that can impact kind of the way that you that you deal with various DNS stuff is load balancing via DNS, where the record gets rewritten based on who queries it or what where it is in its round robin. Mm -hmm. So that's a way of distributing load, uh, kind of a very simple way of distributing load without putting um, any kind of application layer load balancer in front of systems. But what that can mean for you is that you'll get different IPs for the same resolution and sometimes very quickly, sometimes in, in 30 seconds, if you if you do uh, different resolutions. And that can really uh, that can trip you up if you're if you're tracing things down or you're making things a little bit more static than you think. Yeah, yeah. There's also so I don't know if you're gonna talk about this, like setting up the DNS server, like specifically on Linux systems. I wasn't really going to go too far into that, but let's. But we can we can take that digression. So it's just one thing that I'll throw out there, and something that I've definitely noticed is like, especially for Ubuntu, you run into these issues where so the result.com file is not a file that you should edit. It says it right mm -hmm. at the top, like, "Hey, don't edit me." However, yeah. like Ubuntu eighteen and twenty four kind of get funky. So like, uh, network manager is a thing on Linux systems for those mm -hmm. who who don't know. And it now, like, you know, it handles a lot of the nitty gritty of just setting up uh, your IP and everything. Um, some people turn it off, but it's, it's easier to use than going in and edit the files. Well, um, there's also NetPlan now. And so I've definitely run into some issues where if I set the DNS servers in Network Manager and even restart the, uh, the server, um, my result.com does not update. It has to be put into NetPlan as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's really annoying yeah like i like I, i'll go in and edit the result.conf because like you can edit it it's just gets overran by the application at a certain yeah. point but like then five seconds later i'm trying to connect to something and now i know can, can no longer resolve it i'm like what the hell oh shoot like it got rewritten well i mean uh, but that's a that's a good point and that kind of brings into something that i was debating whether or not to talk about which is the use of the dig tool which is uh a DNS res resolution tool that is more powerful than 
the original NS lookup, the one that comes, which is also what comes with Microsoft stuff. Um, you can, in a single line, uh, specifically query different kinds of server records, which takes a lot more work with, with NS. But the thing that I like using, which kind of goes to the problem you were having, is that you can specify the name server that you want to resolve to when you're running dig. So you can figure out whether it's my system that's not resolving it correctly or the DNS entry that's that's not resolving right, it. Right, right, yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, if you do run into any problems having to do with names, man.dig or certain man space dig. Um, and name pro naming problems are problems more often than than, than I ever like to admit. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, you know. Accidentally keyed in the same uh, uh, entry for like two different hosts at one point, or like you know. Yeah, the, all all kinds of stuff. You know, names not replicating, somebody not publishing the file, or changing the startup authority serial number, mm -hmm. or the entry just not being there, even though the guy who's maintaining the DNS server said it was supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> The last infrastructure thing that I'm going to talk about is, have you ever heard the term split horizon? I've heard the term, but don't know what it actually is. What it is, is the practice in DNS of having different zone files, different resolutions allowed externally versus internally. What do you, what do you mean by that? So you have all of your Active Directory stuff, right? Mm. But let's say your Active Directory is using the same domain name your, your AD root is the same domain name as your production externally facing network. And you don't want all of your internal Active Directory hosts, um, all of your servers and, and workstations being resolvable externally, but mm -hmm. it's the same zone that you're publishing your website. Right. Split Horizon does is it lets you say that if the query comes from inside my network, inside these subnets, mm -hmm. give them the whole shebang, give them the internal, the uh, all the internal hosts. But if it's coming from outside of that, just give them this small list. Interesting. And bind can do this through a function called views. So you're maintaining one DNS server, but gives you different resolutions based on where you're at. Now here's another thing that you can do. Let's see, let's say you have your internal production portal thing and you have an external load balancer and then you have kind of your internal replication of that. And the internal one uses private IP space and the external one uses public IP space. And for various network reasons, you want your internal folks to go to the internal one rather than the external one. So you can give them a different answer based on the network that you're coming from. Hmm, okay, um, that makes sense. So I was just yeah. looking it up by the way. Um, for for Windows AD, it's called split brain. Okay, the, the the original term for the technique was called split horizon. And way back in the day, before bind made views, you generally did it on two different servers or at least two different services. Hmm, um, okay, yeah, so, this, this is actually yeah. pretty interesting. I'll have to look into this more because I had never yeah. actually looked into it. It's an important technique for both security and it can really help out managing larger networks um so uh so it's a good thing to be a, to be aware of that you can give different answers based on where you're coming from and it kind of makes sure that you only expose what you want to expose keeping that you know internet facing footprint small mm -hmm, even yeah. from a reconnaissance perspective and so the last section that i wanted to get to today 
were other record types besides the simple ones, or at least the important ones. There's actually a kind of a big list of valid record types. The first is the quad A record. Do you know what that does? The quad A. Yeah. I don't think I've ever actually used that. It's an I. That's the IPD six record. So oh yeah, then, yeah. I've not. We we still have not uh, migrated IPv six. Thing that you'll find if you watch your resolution traffic is that you'll still see a lot of quad A resolution requests because mm -hmm. part of the attempt to make the transition from v4 to v6 easy a lot of applicant a lot of dns resolution libraries will automatically ask for the quad a record even if they don't have an ipv6 address from which to use it right so in case you're looking at your your bro or zeke records or looking at your at your bind server logs that's the reason why you're seeing the, those quad a records is it's for v6 and for the transparency of the transition to v6 stuff will make those those requests. Mm -hmm. So there's another record type that I've seen used and are usually good on like internal networks are LOC records, lock records, which are mm -hmm. location records. So like you could have a network device where it's got its normal name record, but you also put in a lock record. So you had a location of where that network device was, you know, a router switch, like a country city data center rack location kind of information for you know large networks, you can find it out through a DNS query rather than having to find the place where that information is captured. Yeah, yeah, I never thought about doing that through DNS. Like I, I've seen um, different vendor applications, stuff like that for mapping out like your data center and like, you know, you can throw all the information in and go right down into like a 3D diagram of your uh, racks and like, you know, pinpoint the, uh, the PDUs and stuff like that. But yeah, doing it through um, DNS seems uh, much more simpler. Yeah. Well, I think I wouldn't be surprised if um, you could use those lock records to populate a, uh, a tool like that. Oh, yeah, I'm not sure. So another kind that I thought was pretty cool when I found out about this are SRV records, which are service records. You know how mm -hmm. MX has its own record of, hey, this is where my mail exchange is? Right, right. Well, they said basically when other when other protocols said wanted their own records, they said no, 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 screw this. We're going to make a record specifically for services rather than have rather than making a specific record type for every service that wants it. Right. Yeah. I mean, that would become incredibly cumbersome. Exactly. Um, so one thing that I thought was pretty cool was that SIP actually can use service records to find directories for. Uh, SIP endpoints. So you can look up by some by somebody's email address whether or not they have a SIP destination if the domain is enabled. It lets you make a VoIP call, you know, over the internet without involving any telecommunications exchange or anything like that. Right. Or, or, or a phone number. It, it's you know, email address to email address. I think that this is at oh, least uh, LDAP uses this too. Mm -hmm. um, the server records, yeah, because I, I, I vaguely remember like looking into a lot of this. Um, oh, and Puppet does too. Um, <laughs> Puppet can go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I just remember looking into like a lot of like the underworkings of ADD, and I think that was the first time I saw SRV records, and I was like, "What the hell are these?" Yeah, yeah. So they, there's a lot of things <laughs> that leverage that leverage them, and, and uh, you may find yourself working with something that that. Uh, that uses an S that uses SRV records, and that may become very important to the way that you uh, 
that you deploy or troubleshoot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Whatever I was looking into, it was basically in reference to the SRV records for uh, Windows AD. And it was also like, you, just so you know, like, be cautious because if you would break these records, you you just broke your entire like authentication infrastructure. Exactly. Okay, so the last kind of record we're going to talk about are text records, TXT records, which are freeform text records. Now they're used for a bunch of things. There's some cool stuff that we'll talk about in episode two because they're specifically things that Dan Kaminsky figured out. But because they're freeform text records, you can kind of do what you want with them. And because of that, and because the standards organization, the EITF, hasn't wanted to make too many different new record types. Some of the email security stuff actually uses text records to to, uh, share data. Uh, There's the domain keys identified email, the DKIM record, which provides a validation key so that a mail server can be validated using a public key that comes from DNS. Mm, Okay. Uh, And we'll go deeper into that when we do one of these big protocol breakdowns for for email. And then the other one is for the sender policy framework, which is another anti-spoofing technology, uses text records to encode um, for its encoding. And what SPF does is it authorizes mail servers sending for your domain. And because it's a record on your domain, if somebody's spoofing your email server, connecting to the victim domain, the victim domain is going to look up to you whether or not the spoofing should should have happened. And Mm. that way, you know, you can actually correlate who's being spoofed, who's getting spoofed emails uh, from your domain via somebody else's system, even though you're not in the traffic path. Oh, that's cool. I like that. Yeah, it is a pretty cool technique. There's a really good breakdown on exactly what you need to do to set that stuff up, uh, which again, we're not going to get too deep today because... Only so many fundamental, complicated protocols that we we can we can do per episode. Yeah, yeah. I, I thankfully, like I was saying earlier, like I've only worked one job, and I think it was when I was a fresh out uh, for a managed service provider that dealt with I think one exchange server, and, and never have I worked with any other email servers or anything. Like the closest I get is just you know setting up send mail scripts, pointing them to the the email relay that we have within our environment, and then. That's it. I'm like, you need any more work? Like, go talk to the uh, the engineers behind the actual email servers because I want no part of it. Yeah, and email has gotten really complicated, especially with people using various cloud services. Because mm-hmm. um, you can easily have a cloud service owning your MX record and being the the front end for everything that comes out, and then you using your own infrastructure to send email or at least some of your emails directly. In which case your the source of your emails is completely different from where you're receiving emails. Yeah, yeah. I, I think my funniest story with emails is when I was working for this managed services provider, and uh, one of the users' um, systems was locked up. And come to find out, she had you know, a completely full uh, disk. And the reason she had an entirely full disk, and the the email server was also full up too, because they would. <laughs> um, saving some of the uh, the archive files on the email server for users to connect to. And the issue was that her archive file for Outlook had email, I think it was like 500 gigs in size or something like that. She had saved every email um, since she had started as nonprofit in like 1972 or something. 
It's just oh like, my. I was like, lady, lady, you don't need every one of these emails. And she's like, well, I might have to, I might have to look back at some point. And I'm like, no, because probably half these people are dead by now. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I will say that I have been in the habit of archiving my emails on a quarterly basis to a separate PST file. So at yeah. least I'm not growing it to 500 gigs because right, God, right. I've ever heard. I, I've heard Outlook just killing itself over one gig PST files. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that's like the, the main thing was Outlook just exploded and I got called in to figure out what, what was going on and discovered this after I think like four hours of like snooping around. But, yeah. Yeah, always a good idea though to save your emails. Just don't save it in a huge ass file. Yeah, well, I, I also like the, the it means that my searching gets uh gets kind of cut up into smaller bite sized chunks. I, if I know it's from five years ago, I can just load those PST files. Yeah, 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 exactly. Anyway, that's all the DNS that's fit to print. At least before we get into the exciting Dan Kaminsky stuff. Right, right. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to hear about a lot of that stuff because I have not dabbled with DNSSEC at all. I don't think I've even looked up a lot of what uh, Dan did with uh, DNS. Yeah, well, the sneak preview is he figured out how to stream stuff over DNS. Uh, he created the bug that I call the bug that broke the internet. And we'll tell that story. And he was one of the key holders for the DNS sec root keys. And we'll explain how DNS sec works and one of the things that was a little bit dangerous about the way that DNSSEC works um, that Cloudflare did a bunch of articles about uh, has to do with the denial of service. But uh, I, I will save something for that for, for next episode uh, rather than talking about that. But I, I think it's a really cool piece of uh, piece of hackery. So uh, I'm going to have yeah. some fun talking about that one. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, until next time. Until next time. Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs 1 on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.